Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Floor is Rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. Another interesting artist is uh, Manolo Gamboa. And interesting in the sense that he is a generative artist, but he's not really into sort of the, the, the collectible drop mechanic that other generative artists that we've talked about have done their art. Like if you look at, so he, he, he does NFTs, he's on super rare, but all of his creations are all sort of artist curated, right? That he, he does his generative work, but the thing, the, the works that he puts out there for, for sale are all curated by himself. And he's very particular about it. Well, what do you think of both that strategy and just, I guess, Manolo's art in, in general? You have a theoretically infinite variety of output that could result from the same algorithm. And an artist like Manolo knowingly curates or like he filters it out so that what the collector or the audience sees is only a small subset of that. So the advantage of that is that the artist has more of a, I don't know if you want to call it a vision, but Manolo has kind of imposed a certain... Or rather, he's imposed an additional set of parameters that only he's aware of that narrows the output down. And so what you see is like what he believes maybe is the best or the most interesting style that he's been able to come up with, right? So on the one hand, I think that's short-selling the mechanism in a sense because it's a very curated, kind of narrowed-down selection. But on the other hand, it goes back to what we were saying just now about the you know, the death of the style of the artist. This is a case where the artist still has a very strong say in dictating the kind of boundaries of where, of what is produced, I think, by that algorithm or by the generative mechanism. What struck me also, actually, is more that a lot of the styles that he's come up with are strikingly similar to styles that have come to be known as signature by modern and contemporary artists from, you know, say the early 19th and 20th centuries, actually. Uh, sorry, early 20th centuries and, and, you know, last century, basically. And there's an article on the great artgnome.com blog by Jason Bailey that where he points up some of these parallels. So he's comparing, he's taking some of Manolo's works and put them alongside works by Kandinsky, Delaunay, and I think Max Ernst. So there's, there's a variety represented there. We have a Russian constructivist. We have a kind of French, like post, I'm not sure if Delaunay is considered post-impressionist, but kind of color field, color block paintings and a German expressionist, right? I found that very, um, in a way, sobering because it, we've reached a point, I think, where some of these very talented artists are able to approximate visual styles that by these artists that took years and sometimes decades to refine. With social media, you know, anyone can download a filter that, you know, lets you just point a camera at something and then click a button and and you apply a Picasso filter and, hey, now you've got a Picasso, right? <laughs> And also, I mean, beyond the point of algorithmic sort of generation, isn't that the uh, the story of sort of human progress? 
that basically, you know, the current generation always builds upon the achievements of prior generations. I mean, this, this happens in nearly every single human endeavor. So why wouldn't it happen? I guess in art, people have thought that art is not that, that it's kind of like, it's not mechanical in that sense that maybe people think that other fields of, you know, endeavor is, is more mechanical, but I guess with, you know, the advances in sort of AI and machine learning that we are learning that at least visually art is somewhat mechanical <laughs> and with enough computer processing power, you, you can simulate the mechanics of anyone in art history. I just wanted to know, as someone who is a keen NFT collector and maybe is not, uh, didn't maybe didn't respond as much as I did to the so-called mimicry of certain visual styles from 20th century art, and because you said that you're less keen on Manolo, could you give us a sense of like what you do respond to very enthusiastically in terms of uh, generative art? One of the reasons why generative art has been so popular, aside from sort of that loot box drop mechanic, which was so successful that was legislatively banned in a lot of countries because, you know, you, you, it just triggers something in the human mind that nobody can fight. But aside from that is that I think unquestionably you can say that, you know, this particular niche being a very, very small niche, you can say that it's probably the closest to being acknowledged as the best in the world in that particular niche because on-chain generative art, it's basically impossible <laughs> in any other context. And, you know, when we when we talk about the all important, what is medium native, well, something that can only be done on the blockchain is by definition sort of medium native. And collectors want, you know, any collector, any serious collector wants the best in the world at something that they want to collect, right? So this is why, you know, if you look at auction prices, people want to pay more for the best. And I think there is still a question mark out there for non-generative art, whether, well, it's the best, right? Because uh, I think a lot of collectors would question whether whether paying $70 million for people is justified because is, is he the best at what he does and what is it that he does? <laughs> and, and I think a lot of crypto artists will probably face that question as more artists come into crypto because obviously where there's money, people are going to come into the space. And I think that, you know, when you're a big fish in a little pond and all of a sudden some other fish from another pond comes over and, and maybe he's bigger than you, that, that it raises existential questions as to what you're worth and what he's worth and what this means for the space. But I think that for collectors, and one of the reasons why generative art is so popular and fetching such high prices is that most people are convicted that in this particular niche, the best in the world is unquestionably here. And I, I guess that's how I think about uh, generative art from a, from a collector's perspective. Cool. That's uh, that's great to hear from from what I think is a very serious collector mentality. <laughs> I think, uh, no, no, I think it's, 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 that's the other thing. I suggested that that would be a litmus test because it has been, historically speaking, for traditional art. In each era, it was the art that was pushing boundaries technologically. It was the art that was being newly facilitated by a certain, well, yeah, mostly technological 
advances that spoke to the specific, you know, attributes of that medium uh, that historically were vindicated as the most uh, important. And, and as a result of that, obviously, the market as well. If history is anything to go by, there's going to be a similar kind of mechanism at work where generative art will is proving to be the kind of uh, subset of the space that validates the, the medium native art as, as the most uh, important, as the most valuable, as the most expensive. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor Is Rising.